Hi, I'm Rick Atkins, pastor here at CFCC. Welcome. We hope you enjoy this sermon and that God uses it to grow you in your relationship with Him. Before we get started, our goal is not to replace your investment in a local church with online content. We were made for community. We want to encourage you to engage in a local church with your gifts. See, when the people of God invest in the community of God, they experience the transformative power of God. And that is our hope and prayer for you. Again, thanks for joining us and we hope you enjoy the sermon. When life gives you lemons, ask what you did to deserve them. Right? Like when we go through hardships and struggles, one of the first questions that we go to is why? Why is this happening? To me, what did I do to deserve it? As he wired into us is this sort of intrinsic assumption that people should always just get what they deserve. That if we do good things, we should receive good things. And if we do bad things, we should receive bad things. And that's just how the world is supposed to work. That's how it's meant to be. That's what's fair. But then we read the Bible and you see stories like guys like Paul. Right, who's preaching the gospel, doing exactly what Jesus told him to do, and then they beat him to within an inch of his life and throw him in jail. And you're like, what? That doesn't make sense. And then you look at Paul in this prison. What's he doing? He's praising God. You're like, that makes even less sense. How is he in his pain, in his prison cell, worshiping the God who just let him get beat up for preaching the gospel that he told him to preach? How do you just praise and rejoice in suffering? This is why the book of Habakkuk is so important for us to understand. Life is messy. There is pain and struggle in it. And that pain, it can either pull us away from God or it can grow us deeper in God. And which it does is dependent not so much on the pain, but rather how we understand and perceive that pain. So next week, we start our, our final series of the year, Advent, Christmas, going into the, the holiday season. Uh, this year, or this year, today, we're going to finish our study through the book of Habakkuk. Six weeks we've been in this three-chapter little book uh, in the Old Testament. So if you've got a Bible or a Bible app, we're going to begin in chapter 3, verse 16. If you haven't been with us through the whole journey, uh, the book of Habakkuk is this sort of unique, challenging book that covers a lot of things that we don't typically talk about and we're not always comfortable talking about. You have this prophet who is calling God out and arguing with him. You have the wrath of God, the judgment of God, and the people of God being promised that suffering is coming. What Habakkuk shows us is what we see in life Things aren't always good. And the Bible is really honest about that. Even Jesus says, in this world, you will have troubles. But what's interesting about Habakkuk is that the chapter, the book ends with a musical notation. So a book that is primarily built around the wrath of God and the coming judgment on his unfaithful people ends with praise. The final chapter of Habakkuk was meant to be sung. See, this is a, a layered and complex book that walks us through the journey of wrestling with God that we can learn that his ways are not like our ways so that we can trust him even in the storms and struggles of life. 
So if you desire more than a simplistic knowledge of God, than a shallow faith, understanding this book is absolutely essential. Because until we get real with God, until we wrestle with him and bring our troubles and our challenges and our pain to him, our faith will never be anything more than superficial lip service. And so this is the journey that it takes us to and kind of what brings this whole process to a conclusion. Starting in verse 16, I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. So God gives vision, God gives Habakkuk this vision. And the vision is not of some glorious end to a coming suffering. It's not a, a light at the end of a tunnel. It's not even a promise that the pain and struggle that's coming will be short-lived. It's a vision of his majestic power. See, God doesn't answer Habakkuk's question in the, in the way that Habakkuk wanted or the way he expected. What he does is he shows Habakkuk who he is. And Habakkuk is stunned. He is overwhelmed by the revelation of God's majestic power. Now, what we have to understand as we go through this is the situation hasn't changed. Okay? God is still doing what God was going to do. The Babylonians are still coming. The people of God are still going to go through a prolonged series of suffering. What has changed here is not God's plan, but rather Habakkuk's perspective. See, Habakkuk, he starts off confused, frustrated, and angry. And so he calls God out and he says things because he doesn't see what God is doing. He doesn't understand how God is working. And so he calls him out and he says, look, if you're so just, why is there injustice? If you're so good, why is there so much evil? And how long will you do nothing about it? How long are you just going to sit back and do nothing while the good people suffer and the wicked prosper? How long? I mean, he's yelling, he's raging, he is challenging God, and then he sees God, and everything changes. Church, storm's still coming, but Habakkuk is no longer concerned about the storm. See, now he sees things differently. Having seen this majestic vision of God's power, Habakkuk now understands that God is going to bring his justice. That he is going to be faithful. And that while he may not be alive to see God's justice and faithfulness to his promises be fulfilled, that God will fulfill his word. And so what starts is, I'm going to stand here, God, and you're going to answer me, turns into, I will wait quietly. Because now, Habakkuk has peace despite the fact that the vision that God gave him is of a future that is very bleak. Let me show you how he paints this picture. 
Verse 17, though the fig tree should not blossom. Okay, so when a fig tree produces fruit, next to the fruit is a blossom. So the fruit is the thing that you harvest this year. The blossom turns into the fruit for next year. So one fruit, two fruit, this year, next year. There's no fruit on the tree. There's no blossom on the tree. So what he's saying is today is not good and tomorrow is not going to be any better. Again, not a vision of the end of a struggle, picture of a dark pit with no end in sight, no light at the end of a tunnel, no hope on the horizon. Nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. So the vine is not producing, the harvest is not coming in, there is nothing, no crop to bring in. Now, when you don't have a crop to harvest, you know what you also don't have? Seeds to plant for next year's crop. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. So the sheep and the livestock, they're not getting along. You know what happens when your sheep and your livestock don't get along? You don't get more sheep and livestock. When the animals don't breed, they don't produce Offspring, So you have your crop that is failing. You have your animals that are dying out. Now, in an agricultural society whose lives revolved around the harvest, whose survival was dependent on the harvest, this is a picture of utter despair. But it kind of sounds like he's saying the same thing like three different times, doesn't it? It's kind of the same point, like today's bad, tomorrow's going to be bad too. What's that tell us? When the word of God repeats itself, the people of God should take note. See, we are a culture of quick fixes and cheap solutions. Anybody remember the old Staples Easy Button commercials? All right, a couple of you guys. So if you're not familiar with it, if you ever saw it, like basically it was a series of commercials that Staples did where they would, the old principle was always the same. You put somebody in a chaotic situation. So one of them, like you'd see this husband and wife in the house and they just like their hair's all a mess and they just look defeated. And there's kids running around and there's crayons all over the wall. The pets are going everywhere. There's mud all over the place. It just looks like a complete disaster happened in the house. And then at the edge of the kitchen counter, there's this little red button that says easy on it. They push it and just Everything's perfect, and they're all like energized and happy, and you know, because they went to Staples. <laughs> That's us. But that is the greatest desire and pursuit of our lives, is it not? We want an easy button, something that we can just push that makes things comfortable and simple and easy and just solves all the problems of life. This is why Christians are so bad at comforting each other. Because we're looking for the cheap, quick solution. So when somebody goes through something, they have pain and hardship. That's uncomfortable. It's unpleasant. And when someone is in that, rather than just sitting with them and being there for them, so they know in their pain, in their pit, they're not alone, we feel this need. Like, I'm going to need to make you feel better faster, so I'm going to say some words. And we offer these cheap spiritual platitudes that do not give help, they cause harm. Look, if you struggle with this, let me just tell you, talk to anybody who's been through trauma or pain about the things that caused them some of the most hurt to them, and it was well-intentioned things that people said to try to offer them comfort. Almost every time, I practically guarantee it, that's the issue that they'll have. 
Oh, you lost your job. Well, gee golly, when God closes a door, he opens a window, doesn't he? Thank you. That's helpful in this moment. Oh, you lost someone that you loved. Well, I guess God just wanted another angel. Because that's how it works. Oh, you went through hardship. You experienced pain, trauma, abuse, neglect in your life. Well, look at where you are now, though, right? I mean, like, it's all part of God's plan. Some of you guys were around for the journey that my wife and I went on when we went through our adoption process. Uh, but we have our son now who's, who's four, and he's wonderful, and he's perfect, and uh, just a little bundle of joy. But before him, he's laughing at that. He, I don't sleep. He's still joy, all right? All right. So before that, we had another adoption. Uh, we'd been selected by a birth mom to, to raise this baby girl that she was going to have. She was four or five months along at the time. So we had a lot of time to prepare for it. We got excited. Right? We got the nursery ready. We had a baby shower. I freaked out because it was a girl, and I'm like, I won't kill any boy that looks at her. And my wife's like, you need to calm down. And I'm like, I'm not going to calm down. It's just going to get worse. It shouldn't even exist yet. I'm already sharpening a knife. Like, we had plans and hopes. And then we get the call that the birth mother is in labor, so we go to the hospital, and Erica's in the room when baby girl's born. And they bring her to us, and we hold her, change her, feed her, take care of her, name her. She sleeps on my chest every night. Now, initially, in the adoption process, I was concerned. I'm like, is this child, is it going to feel the same? Like, is it going to feel like it's my kid because it's not related to me biologically? And I'll tell you, that concern lasted about a half a second. Like, they put the girl in my hands. I'm like, yep, nope, this is, we're good. No problems there. <laughs> and in one second, I pictured the next 30 years of life. I dreamed of what she would do and what she would be and where she would go and all the people that I would have to hide their bodies because they treated her incorrectly. <laughs> yeah. I went to a dark place. That's true. In a moment, that happened. Three days, we take care of her. And then the day comes for the mom's to be released from the hospital. She's to sign the relinquishment papers, and that's where we get to take baby girl home. And she decides to parent, which is wonderful, okay? That is a great joy. It's a good thing. When a mother chooses to raise her child, that's, that's good. But for us, it felt like losing a child. And the nurses, they came in, they told us, and it was like they just slowly reached in and ripped my heart out of my chest. And they're like, hey, do you want to say goodbye to this before we leave with it? And we were devastated. We were heartbroken. And inevitably, when I tell this story, what happens is there'll be several Christians that come up to me. They're like, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. That must have been so hard. And that's great. And that's where they should stop talking. But they never stop talking there. Because we feel compelled to try to say something spiritual, to try to offer some cheap thing to make it better as if a couple of words are going to remove that pain. And so they'll say things like, oh, well, you know what, but you got your son now, and that worked out great. Look at that. You should just rejoice. You see, the problem is that when we offer those statements, we're not saying them to give comfort to the other person. We're saying them because their pain has caused us discomfort, and we're trying to get rid of that. So what we're saying when we make these statements is like, man, 
I'm so sorry, but your paint really not cool for me. So can we just wrap this up in a nice box? I'll put a silver lining bow on it. We'll slide it under the bed and never talk about it again. And what it is, is it's cheap. And it makes the pain feel cheap. And the person who's experienced it, they feel like you don't even understand what they've been through. And they feel more alone, not more comforted. Because just because it worked out well doesn't mean that that pain fits nicely into a little box and can be gone away. See, that's the problem. We don't like dealing with hardship. And we would rather dismiss struggle than address struggle. And that causes us to be really bad at times of being comforting to others who are in struggles. Because we just want it to go away. And so when those hardships come, the reason we're so bad at it, the reason we tend to struggle with it so much is that we try to ignore it, we try to downplay it, we try to rush through it or just dismiss it altogether. And so Habakkuk repeats this point three times to say, don't do that. This is not just some cute little agricultural metaphor he's using. He is describing the destruction of his people. His friends, his family, everyone he has ever known and loved are about to enter into a season of perpetual suffering and pain. He knows it's coming. It's heavy. And the thing is, church, we need to feel the weight of it. Because if you skip over the hardship, you miss what it's meant to produce, which is this. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Habakkuk started frustrated. He speaks to God. God gives him a vision that things are going to be so much worse than Habakkuk thought. It's bleak. It's despair. And his response is, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. Despite the despair that he sees coming, Habakkuk rejoices. What started off as, God, why aren't you doing something? Turns into, I will praise and rejoice in you, my salvation and strength. Why? Because in seeing the majesty of God, the power of God. Habakkuk realized something, that God is always in control over disease, nations, history, even nature itself. There is nothing in all creation that God is not in control of, nothing in existence that is not under God's control. And that he is so splendid, he is so glorious that the sun itself dims in comparison to him and that he is the source of joy and strength even in hardships and struggles. And so Habakkuk rejoices not because the storm went away but because he sees God in it. Because he learns in this that God does not promise to save us from storms but he does promise to save us through storms. And so his complaint 
turns to contentment. But how do we know that Habakkuk isn't just some wackadoodle who likes pain? He's not the only one who goes through this journey. If you remember at the beginning of our series, we talked about David in Psalm 22. Now, Psalm 22 follows the same exact pattern that we see in the book of Habakkuk. At the beginning, we looked at the first half of Psalm 22, where David expresses his struggle and his hardship to God. I want to show you how that psalm ends. Verse 19. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. And you, offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the afflicted, the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he has cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vow, my vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. The song that began, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, oh my God, I cry out to you by day, but you do not answer me. And at night, I find no rest. Ends with worship. When we bring our mess, our struggles, our frustration and pain to God, we receive from him comfort. Not cheap platitudes, but genuine peace. See, what the Bible shows us is that those songs that begin with struggle end with praise. And you go, how? How do you start off frustrated and confused and angry and end up praising God louder than you ever have in your life, calling him your joy and your strength? What changed? They got real. They got real. Look, I cannot emphasize to you enough the importance of you getting real in your relationship with God Okay, not just like, oh, I, I pray the Lord's Prayer every day, and I walk around like a choir of angels follows me going, oh, everywhere I go as I prance through a field of lilies. There are challenges. There are hardships in life. And pretending they don't exist doesn't make them go away. What David, what Habakkuk did, was they got real. And their expression, they're taking their, their troubles and their struggles to God. It was raw, but it was honest. 
And in bringing their hardships to God, they received comfort. And they rejoiced in him because when he comforted them, they saw something that they had missed. That God is always, eternally, perpetually faithful. God makes promises to Israel. Guess what? Israel fails. God is faithful. God makes promises to Abraham. Abraham fails. God is faithful. God makes promises to Moses. Moses fails. God is faithful. God makes promises to David. David fails. God is faithful. Are you seeing a pattern? That God is faithful even when we are not. That he always does what he says he will do. And this is the great comfort and peace that we can have even in the greatest storms of life to know. Because here's the truth, church. Salvation exists in the hands of God. Not yours. There is no role that you play in your salvation. Nothing that you can do to bring it about. You don't even get yourself closer to the line of salvation. We are completely and totally dependent on God for salvation. So to know that he is always faithful, that he always does what he says he will do, Even when we fail, he is faithful. Even when we fall short, he is faithful. Even when we are a mess and a wreck and we can't get it together, he is faithful. Even when, like the Israel in the desert, we forget him again and again, he is faithful to do what he says he will do. So in that, we have peace. In that, we can rejoice because we know that we can trust in him anything that you trust in yourself your friends your family your job money media government power reputation anything you place your trust in in this world anything that you place your trust in that is not God can and will at some point fail you but God doesn't fail Even in our imperfection, he is unwavering. He always does what he says he will do, and what he says he will do is save all who belong to Jesus. That he will rescue us from the despair and imperfection of our lives, bring us into his kingdom, give us new life, that he will come and he will wipe every tear from our eyes. Our hope and our faith is not in this world. It's not in things that can fail. It's not in the immediacy of our circumstances. It's in the God who is in control over all of them. The God who is good and righteous and just. The God who is loving, who cannot fail and is always faithful. Habakkuk's vision changed his focus. See, the reason he struggled at the beginning was because he was looking at the problems. He was looking at the injustice, looking at the wickedness with the vision changes. Now he's looking at God. This is maybe one of the most important things I ever teach you. When you look at what's in front of you, your perspective of God will always be dependent on the circumstances in front of you. 
When life is good, God will be good. But when life isn't, when you need him the most, you will struggle the hardest. Because too often, we look at and define who God is through the lens of what we see in the world. Instead of looking at and defining the world through the lens of who God is. Church, what we need is not an easy button. It's to know God and to mature in Him. What's that look like? Well, you got to know the Bible, right? Yeah. And no. There's a lot of people who know the Bible real good. They don't look anything like Jesus. So yes, do you need to know the Bible in order to be mature in your relationship with God? Absolutely. But knowing the Bible doesn't make you mature. Right? The Pharisees knew the scriptures up, down, and sideways, but they didn't even recognize Jesus when he showed up, when he stood right in front of them. What we need is not just to know it, we need to understand it. We need to surrender ourselves to it. We need to be defined and redefined by it, not looking to Scripture to agree with us, but looking to Scripture to mold and shape us so that we can agree with Jesus. That we might know Him. Okay, Jesus says in John 17, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God. Let me be really clear about this. What He means is not know your idea of God. What he means is not know who you think God is or how you think God should be or what you think God is like. What he means is know God for the reality of who he is. Because in him and in the reality of him and him alone is a joy that can never be taken, that can never be broken, that can never be lost. It is a joy that is found only and exclusively in Jesus. Because let me tell you this, your health can fail. Your money can run out. Your family can be broken. Anything that you place your hope, your identity, and your purpose in, in this world, is insecure. And it will fade. Only the joy that comes from Jesus is a joy that cannot be taken. To know that our hope is not in this. So don't get fixated on the moment that you're in. If you're in a struggle and storm, don't hyper-focus on that. Because the promise that we have from the God who is always faithful to fulfill his promises is not that life won't have pain, but that pain has an expiration date. It's that evil will be defeated, that death will be done, that suffering, loneliness, and loss will come to an end. The promise that we have is a Savior who will wipe the tears from our eyes and give us the greatest comfort and the greatest joy, and that will last. The joy and the glory and the life with Him in perfection, that will endure, but the things of this world will fade away. So fix your eyes, not on the temporary struggles, but on the eternal glory that we receive in Jesus. so often we approach Jesus like he's the means to an end 
I want Jesus so that he can fix me, heal me, help me, save me. Church, the purpose of Jesus is not to get you to heaven. The purpose of heaven is to be with Jesus. This is what maturity looks like. Jesus is not your genie in a bottle. Jesus is your wish. Jesus is not the method to get what you want. Jesus is your treasure that you desire. That when you read the word, you aren't reading it so that you can whack them old people over the head with it. You're reading it because you want more of Jesus. He's the prize. He's the treasure. He's the purpose and the identity and the pursuit and the joy of life. Here's why the songs that begin with struggle end with praise. The pain and struggles of this world take our eyes off of God. And they stir in us fear and worry, anxiety and doubts as we try to figure out how to deal with what's in front of us. And our focus moves to the problem. Worship places our eyes back on Jesus. It moves our focus back to Jesus. The cure to worry is worship. The solution to pain is praise. It's reminding your heart where its attention, where its joy, where its strength belongs. Because our hope is not to avoid the storm. It's in the Jesus who calms storms, who heals sickness, who raises the dead, and who has promised that we will be with him. When Jesus is your prize, you have a joy that will never be taken from you, even if your whole life it's a series of storms. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are good even when life isn't, that you love us even when we prove consistently unfaithful to you. God, I pray for those in this room who are in need of comfort, that you would bring them comfort that you would bring healing, restoration, and peace to the conflicts and struggles before us in you, that we would seek you and strive for you and turn to you in them, that they didn't just go away, but that they drove us to cling to you. And I pray that we would see the majesty and the wonder of your glory that we would praise you from the top of our lungs as we remind our hearts that they belong to you. We thank you for Jesus and we thank you for grace. Amen.